Welcome to the Coming Home Well podcast, the show that educates, supports, and advocates for the veteran community. Your host, Dr. Tyler Piron, U.S. Army retired, will bring you exciting conversations with amazing guests about resources, research, and military history, all geared to helping our warriors to come home well. Here's your host, Dr. Tyler Piron. Welcome to Coming Home Well. I'm your host, Tyler Piron, and we are doing something a little bit different today. Uh, every time is a little bit different, but this time we're talking with the Commissioner of the Department of Veterans Services. And we've talked to a lot of folks at the DVS, but never have we talked to the head honcho, and especially at the beginning of an administration where they're going to have different views, they're going to have different approaches and different priorities. So we're going to get it straight from the horse's mouth about sort of what's going to continue, and what they hope to change during their time as the Commissioner of Department of Veteran Services. Hopefully, it's all for the good. I can't imagine it would be for the worse. Nobody goes in with the goal of making things worse. That's always a good thing. Welcome to the show, Commissioner Daniel Gade. Now, he is also a veteran. He served 25 years, retired as Lieutenant Colonel. And as many of you might know, he was wounded while serving and then continued to serve while missing a leg. That is a big deal. That's a very difficult thing to see. You definitely get a different perspective on the disability and combat wounded and all these other things at the same time. So I'm really glad to have him on the show. Welcome, Daniel. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Tyler. So you are now the commissioner of the Department of Veterans Services for Virginia. How in the heck did you get started with that job? Who You couldn't, uh, I'm sure they didn't pick it out of a hat. Yeah, well, they didn't pick it out of a hat for sure. The governor picked me personally, but let me back up way back to 1992. So I enlisted as a private in the U.S. Army in 1992, enlisted from my home state, my original home state of North Dakota, of all places, and enlisted in the Army as a medic, which back then was in 91, went to basic training, and then in between my junior and senior year of high school, and then after that, I got accepted to West Point. So I went to basic training again the next summer. Uh, at West Point. Graduated from there in 1997 and started a career as an armor officer, which took me as a captain to a place called Ramadi, west of Baghdad, back in 04. So we, those of us who were there in those times call it affectionately and unaffectionately, we call it the burning times. Ramadi was a terrible place back then, and probably, <laughs> heck, for all I know, it's a terrible place now. But I was wounded twice. I was wounded November 10th, 04, by a rocket-propelled grenade, which hit my tank and killed my loader, actually, a guy named uh, Dennis Miller from LaSalle, Michigan, a uh, young soldier, killed him and then uh, wounded me mildly. And then the second time I was wounded was January 10th, 05, two months later when I was hit by a roadside bomb that eventually would end up costing me my entire right leg. And then I decided to stay on active duty. I spent a year in the hospital trying to get better and all that stuff, but I'd been accepted to teach at West Point before I got hurt. And so then they let me continue on that path. So a year to the day after I got blown up, I started my master's degree. And then if you remember way back in those days, summer of 07 or spring of 07, there was something that we call the Walter Reed scandal, which was this big thing. It was all in the news. And basically, there were some Washington Post stories about soldiers being mistreated at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. And so the Bush administration took a big, huge black eye right at the time I was finishing my master's. And so by grace of God, luck, whatever you want to call it, the Bush administration actually called me on my flip phone and said, hey, can you come 
work at the White House. And of course, as a brand new major with a master's in policy, the answer is obviously yes. And so I went and was the Bush administration's lead veteran policy guy from mid 07 to the end of the administration. And That's then it went not back a normal to normal assignment for a brand new major. Oh, it's great. It was great. I was on the domestic policy council and it was in a suit and tie every day, not a uniform ever, no uniforms involved. It was phenomenal. And I got to see, you know, earlier I'd been at the user level of veteran policy because I'd been the guy who got my leg blown off. And then I was at the White House level of, of veteran policy, seeing it from that side too. And so then I got a chance to go back. The army paid for me to go back to <clears throat> University of Georgia which has a, a really good public policy school, went back to University of Georgia to get my PhD. And so summer of 11, I finished with my PhD and then went to went to West Point, was a professor for six years. And then after that, I got, after I retired from the army in 2017, as a Lieutenant Colonel, I was given an opportunity when the, the White House called again, this time the Trump White House. And they said, hey, can you come work in the administration? I said, of course, and, and they, they put me at U.S. Department of Labor and the Veterans Employment and Training Service, where I was uh, a senior advisor and was given an opportunity to see veteran policy again from the very high level. So I've had this really cool experience of going from like user level to high level, back to user level, back to high level. And a lot of that is, is uh, pretty unique. I mean, there aren't that many people who have my kind of experience. So then I left, I left that job in spring of 2019, spring of 19, and went back to teach this time at American University in DC and did that for a couple of years. And then as some of your listeners will know, I ran for United States Senate in Virginia. That's when I met our mutual friend, Kimmy, and some of her people um, was the Republican nominee for US Senate, got more votes. I'd be proud to say this, but I got more votes than any Republican ever in Virginia statewide history, including our current governor. I got more, I got 300,000 more votes than Glenn Youngkin did, but lost to Mark Warner and, and rather decisively. Pretty tough year. 2020 is a pretty tough year to be a Republican running for office. So, so then after that, licked my wounds for a little while and was teaching college and in summer of 2021, now, Governor Youngkin called me and said, hey, can you come on to the campaign full time and, and be part of my team? And I said, absolutely, of course I will. So I did that for six months, five months, something like that. Worked for the governor's team. And then when he won, of course, we're all thrilled. And in January, he called me, maybe January, end of December, something like that. He called me and said, hey, I'd like you to be the commissioner of the Department of Veteran Services. And of course, when somebody somebody like a newly elected governor, a red governor in a pretty blue state calls you and says, hey, can you come to my administration? Of course, the answer is yes, because I'm loyal to the governor. And I believe he's a man of, I know for sure that he's a man of integrity and courage. And I'm really um, proud to be part of the team here. So that's how I ended up at DVS, but it's perfect. It's a perfect job for me. It's like the, the perfect job because I have authority and responsibility and the governor has given me the mission of making Virginia the best place for veterans to live, work, and raise a family. And so that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing at DVS. And that is a great, you must have uh, shared that with other people because that was like dead on. But it's funny, I was listening to your recounting of your experiences and, and the number of parallels and similarities I have with you are pretty amazing. I also did the split option from high school did, in my junior year, joined the army, went in between my junior and senior year in 92. And then I was in Iraq in 03, right outside uh, uh, west of Baghdad, out in Abu Ghraib area. And the oh, army has okay. also paid for my driving. PhD. So uh, we, we have remember, a bunch of uh, similarities. 
I remember driving by when we were taking our tanks in from Kuwait into, into Ramadi. I remember driving by Abu Ghraib and of course it had already been in the news at that point. And I was like, Oh, that's Abu Ghraib. So yeah, I never fought in that area, but I did transit through it. Yeah. A lot of people drove by and that's the best thing to do with that place. And then I was at Walter Reed in 06. That's when I was retired. And then the scandal was just breaking. So, yeah, I've seen all these different parallels. I was like, oh, look, I sim- very similar experiences uh, dealing with uh, the bureaucracy and the challenges and seeing as an external viewer, as well as a participant, all the challenges that we had taking care of our veterans and the wounded warriors while they were on active duty. It was a very not good time to be transitioning yeah. two or three years afterwards. Well, so now you're at yeah, the you know, I got- Go ahead. I have to tell you, though, Tyler, I got great care at Walter Reed. And maybe it was I knew the some of my surgeons I'd gone to I'd gone to West Point with some of my surgeons and stuff like that. What, but I don't think it was that it was that they really did care deeply about taking care of patients. And so my time at Walter Reed was obviously very seriously hurt. I had like 40 surgeries during that time, but they cared for me deeply. And I'm still good friends with a lot of those folks. The the Walter Reed scandal was an administration thing, not a medical thing. Yeah. It's always been an administration thing. That's what gets them in trouble. It's not the medical care generally. It's usually putting wounded warriors in moldy barracks that they move students out of and said, Hey, we'll give them to these wounded warriors instead. But Having a bit more insight, I was working at Walter Reed. I saw the brigade commander fighting every week to try to get some resources to take care of these veterans before it ever hit the news. And it was just, oh, well, we're going to might be transitioning, closing Walter Reed down. We're not going to give you any money. It's always these type of things that sort of blow up in our face. Pennywise pound foolish sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Totally. So you're at the DVS and you've got quite the background for it. What's your goal uh, while you're in this position? Well, I can't say that there's one goal exactly. The governor has given me a three-part goal. To, and I break it down like this. He, on the campaign trail, he would always say, we want Virginia to be the best place for veterans to live, work, and raise a family. And so I break that down to be three things. We want veterans to stay here when they leave service. So there are about 20,000 people who leave military service in Virginia every year. 20,000. Okay. So 12,000 from Norfolk, and then the other 8,000 are from the Pentagon and Belvoir and Quantico and places like that. So we want them to stay. We want them to, as they're transitioning out, we want them to say, holy crap, Virginia is awesome. I want to stay here. So that's stay. Number two is we want people to work here. And I, I know you spend a lot of time talking about the disability system. I've written a whole book about the disability system called Wounding Warriors, because I think the disability system is a travesty and makes people into victims that don't need to be victims. But setting that aside, the best way to keep people here, or I'm sorry, the best way to help people thrive is to get them a job, help veterans find jobs, help employers who want to to hire veterans find veterans. So it's a two-part, there's supply and demand on both sides, but basically there's veterans who need jobs, there's employers who want to give veterans jobs, and we just need to marry them up. And so that's the pillar I call work. And the last one is one I call thrive. So live, work, thrive, or stay, work, thrive, right? The, the Thrive one is much more, it's nebulous. It's a little bit nebulous. It's harder to say exactly what it does. But we at, at Department of Veteran Services, and by the way, the, for everybody, it's dvs.virginia.gov. That's deltavictorsierra.virginia.gov. We offer a wide variety of other kinds of services. So we have suicide prevention specialists. We have education specialists. We have the benefits people I talked about earlier. We, there's a ton of services we provide 
that complement or, or work alongside what federal VA does. And then the other piece about Thrive is we do tons of work with veterans who are really frustrated by big VA. They've applied for benefits and they can't get it. They've applied for healthcare and gotten, maybe they've had a bad experience of some kind. They call us and then we connect them with the right answers to help them solve those problems. And so there's a, a good bit of constituent services that we do like that. And all of it is designed together to, we really believe, and the governor believes this personally, I've talked to him about it. Um, the governor believes, and I know that veterans are a super valuable asset to their communities because we know we know how to work. We know how to be disciplined. We're better educated, actually, on average than the, the average civilian. We bring to the table all kinds of really unique experiences and loyalty and all of that, plus the ability to use our education to further our communities. And so Veterans are an incredibly powerful asset, and it's just it's super important for, for us as a Commonwealth to keep as many of those folks here as we possibly can. But the Commonwealth really has a very generous plan uh, of number of benefits to stay in the Commonwealth, especially if you retire or they have all sorts of things for disabled veterans. But in fact, they just passed, a, I'm not even sure when it goes into effect, but I think it's July, about retirement pay being not taxable. That's a big incentive, and, and that's where you lose a lot of veterans to Tennessee or Florida or Texas, other places where they don't tax that uh, retirement income. So that's a big change. That isn't the DVS, but that is definitely part of the suite of encouragement that people have to stay in the Commonwealth. So you've been in the job for, what, a couple months. What's been the biggest challenge that you found so far? What I would say is that the, oh man, the biggest challenge I see is that big VA is happy to, uh, when I say big VA, I'm talking about federal VA. Big VA is happy to do the stuff they do, but they are terrible partners for us. And so what they don't do is tell us where our veterans are and who they are and what they need. So in other words, big VA, they're, they're, let me back up. There are about 730,000 veterans in Virginia. 109,000 of them are women. The highest percentage of women veterans of any state in the country. And the problem is we've got all these great benefits. For example, there's a benefit for 90 and 100% disabled veterans called VMESDEP, the Virginia Military Survivors Independence Education Program. And a big we literally mouthful, had anyway, the program manager on last week. Yeah, it's awesome. It's a great It's program. wonderful. The problem is that nobody knows about it. And so it's totally underutilized. But what it does is for anybody who's 90 or 100% disabled, their children or spouse can go to any Virginia school for free. It's amazing. It's an amazing program, but nobody knows about it. And what I said to the secretary of the VA the other day at a conference I was at, I raised my hand and said, hey, sir, his name is Dennis McDonough. I said, Mr. Secretary, you said that states are vital partners with big VA. The problem is you treat us as junior partners. It's not even true. Give us, if I've got this great benefit, there are about, we statistically speaking, there's about 50,000 veterans who are 90 or 100% disabled in Virginia right now, right? I can contact like zero of them because big VA won't give me a phone book. And so it's this amazing problem where we've got all this great stuff that we can, that the citizens of the Commonwealth have paid for that we want to, to serve our veterans by giving them. And big VA won't tell us who they are. And so or where they are. And so we have limited, our outreach program is constrained by the fact that nobody, the, the big VA won't give us a phone book. And I think I, I think of a solution to that, actually. I mean, because I'm almost convinced that it's not so much that they won't, is that they can't. Just the way yeah. that they've structured data, 
is it would yeah, be actually, relatively simple from a cyber guy perspective. But you know, I'm also aware that how the VA does things isn't always the uh, most uh, cogent right. way. So, yeah. So I'll, I'll geek out for a second here. There's a there's a federal data security standard called FIPS 140.2. And we are FIPS 140.2 compliant. We know we, we have the ability to take that data in to secure it properly and use it for its relevant purposes. But through some relationships that I've had that I've been I've been in these relationships for 15 years since 2007, I've discovered that that the big VA's Privacy Act restrictions allow data to be shared, including like PII and PHI, personal health information, if the data is going to be used for purposes analogous to the purpose for which it was gathered, okay? So I know that's a big mouthful, but what it means is this. If a veteran applies for benefits and that generates a, a, a data stream and a state wants to push other benefits to that veteran using that same data, then Big VA should, according to the law, should be sharing that with states. The problem is they might not know that. And there's a lot of bureaucrats with the ability to say no and not many with the ability to say yes. And so one of the things I'm doing is just telling our members of Congress, like I'm I'm actually going to Capitol Hill on Thursday. I don't know what day this is going to air, but I'm going on Thursday the 17th to talk to Congresswoman Elaine Luria, who is a representative from Virginia Beach area, and talk to Congresswoman Luria and describe this problem set to her because she's on the House VA committee. She's somebody who can call the secretary and say, hey, Mr. Secretary, you need to fix this problem in like now before we have to do a hearing on it. So there, there is a really, there are some tools that, that because of my background in this space, there are some tools I can use to unlock that treasure chest of data. Because it, it's not like I'm trying to, I know a lot of people on this who are listening to this, probably everybody has a grunt style t-shirt and everybody loves Black Rifle Coffee, right? It's not like I'm trying to sell Black Rifle Coffee or grunt style t-shirts. It's that I'm actually pushing valuable services to these people. And I'm not asking because I'm a nonprofit. I represent it, which according to the constitution, last time I checked, states are sovereign entities in and of themselves. And they shouldn't be traded as junior partners by the VA. They should be treated as full-scale partners, even though there's 50 of them plus some territories and stuff. So but that's the a whole huge point, though, challenge. is to help the veteran and, and pushing right. the information and getting in touch with them and maintaining. Is it because it, they don't want to keep it updated or they don't want to allow a no, pass-through? No, no, I mean, no, that, no, Tyler, that's not it. So the real issue is this, that the VA has sort of abused spouse syndrome, I think. In the sense that the only time you ever hear about the VA is when they're screwing things up or when there's a data breach or when there's a this or when there's a that or there's veterans dying at a hospital or whatever it is. The only time you ever hear about big VA is when they're messing things up. And so culturally, the people at big VA have really adopted this like defensive crouch, please don't hit me again, very um, risk averse kind of mentality. And I think it's I think it's across the board up there. And so pointing to their own regulations, pointing to their own law and making the case that we can use the the data in a way that's powerful is really it's part of it's a key part of my job and I think it's why the governor hired me. It is shocking to think that you're a veteran, you get out of whatever service, you settle in Virginia or you come back whatever, and the VA knows who you are cuz they know where that check is going or where they know that yeah. you have applied from. They they have the information and there's another whole state agency whose entire job is to do the same sort of things at the state level, and the communication isn't there. That's shocking. I mean, 
You yeah. think that it was is just seamless and it would be useful. They're working with each of the states to make sure that veterans have access to every yeah. bit of information, every bit of resource that they could possibly need. Uh, but that yeah. isn't happening. That is, yeah, it is shocking. One of the things that's very interesting to me is I went to the state conference or the, the conference for all the state directors of the VA. It's called the National Association of State Directors of Veterans Affairs, NASDAVA. Went to the NASDAVA conference and said, I asked some of the more senior people, the, the Texas guys, the chair right now, his name is Tom Palladino. And I, I said to Tom, like, have you tried to get the, the data from big VA? And he's like, oh yeah, we've been trying that for years and it's impossible. And it's just not a thing that's ever going to happen. And I'm like, well, that's no kind of attitude to have. So even if even if it means that I'm to use the the old reference, the Don Quixote reference about tilting at windmills, even if I'm you know charging up an impossible hill or tilting at a windmill here, it's critically important to our veterans that we know where they are because I'll give you I'll give you a, this is a, a a true thing here. I I used to do some research for the National Institutes of Health actually on veteran suicide. And we know which veterans are going to hurt themselves. It's male veterans over the age of 50 who have a mental health condition or uh, long-term chronic pain. Like those things are suicide risks. The man is a suicide risk. Being over the age of 50 is a serious suicide risk. Chronic pain and mental health are all suicide risks. And the VA, it's crazy. The VA has this data. And so what I want to do is put those things together, generate a data file, and then send out a nice note to these people, not saying, hey, we've identified statistically that you're at increased risk of suicide, but instead say, hey, we're the Department of Veteran Services. We're glad you're here. We're proud of your service. Is there anything you need? Please, please uh, use this QR code. Please go to this website. Let us know who you are. If you need anything, we're here to help. And I think that because Big VA won't give us the data, I think that costs lives. I think people are actually dying because of it. And the last stat I saw, I might butcher this, but I think the last stat I saw is that there's about 250 veteran suicides in Virginia per, that's a little less than one a day. And that is one a day too many. And I think in part, now, obviously part of suicide is unpredictable and there's just nothing you can do in some cases, but as a policy matter, it's not okay to throw up your hands and say, I can't do it. And so I'm determined to solve that problem. And that's, I'd say that's the shark closest to my boat for Navy people who might be listening. I'm reaching out to you. It's the shark closest to my boat. It is quite amazing to think of all the little challenges that add up. You wouldn't think that that would be the one of the number one issues that you'd be dealing with. There's so many great programs over the DVS and I know there's always manpower issues and trying to hire people. And there's a lot of competition for a lot of jobs out there. And so getting people that are able to do all these jobs is also a challenge, but then finding all the people to hire and making those connections. People listen to Alfredo with his coach's corner about the service members transitioning and, and it's always so upbeat and helpful. But at the same time, the idea that we can't even share data to make it easy to get in touch with, especially at risk veterans, but any veteran that is here in the Commonwealth, you would think that, that was just a gimme type of response. Yep. Here you go. Take care of them. Cause that is the mission of the VA. So hopefully you're able to resolve that and break that log jam. There is nothing like a bureaucrat's ability to say no. That is yeah. how they derive all their power. It's a risk to say yes. So you've been there a couple of months and I expect you to stay there a good while. That's always the idea, right? So we've got four years with this current governor. Where do you see the Department of Veterans Services in maybe three years? 
Uh, great question. I don't, we're fighting one battle at a time. I don't want to make predictions like that. But what I do know is, here's an example. Here's an indicator of success. Again, there are about 20,000 veterans who leave military service in Virginia every year. And if, if X, whatever X happens to be, and I again, <laughs> for a different reason, I don't have that data either. But if X of those veterans stay in Virginia per year, by, by three years from now, I'd like that number to be 2X. I think that we can make Virginia the place where veterans really do want to stay by by having great education programs, by helping them find jobs that are not just you know paying the bills, but are also meaningful by helping their spouses. We have a military spouse program and a, and a women veterans program. And there's some pretty significant overlap actually between women veterans and military spouses because a lot of military women end up getting married to another service member. So they're both, they're male spouses and women veterans. But anyway, a women veterans program that's great that provides those, that sort of warm um warm handoff, warm landing place for veterans. And frankly, Virginia's gorgeous, man. We got beaches, we got mountains, we got ski slopes, we got, you know, windsurfing, whatever you want to do, we've got it here. And so how do we tell Virginia's story in a way that entices veterans to stay here? And that's what this is really all about for me. I want to transition just a little bit. You wrote a book not too long ago, and you mentioned it earlier, The Wounding Warriors, How Bad Policy is Making Veterans Sicker and Poorer. Tell me a little bit about the book. Yeah, I, I want to be really careful here because this is an interview about my official job duties and you're talking about something that is a separate. Totally separate, not duties. related to official duties at all. This but, was probably preceding yeah. it, I think. I'm pretty sure it yeah, was. But, but what, I, what I would say was, what I would say is this, that what we're doing for veterans nationally isn't working. The, we dump billions and billions of dollars per year in suicide prevention efforts, and it doesn't work because suicide risk is rising among veterans. And, and the book, Wounding Warriors, which is available on Amazon, there's an Audible book, there's an ebook if you like to read it on a Kindle or something. The book is really about that system. And it describes from veterans' perspective a system which really takes veterans who are otherwise capable of important contributions to society and convinces them that because they got hurt in service, because they got sick, because they got wounded, because whatever it is, that they're worthless. And the worthlessness label is called 100% disability. It's called the disability system. The word disability is a negative rearward facing word that says, I can't. I mean, it's an I can't word, not an I can word. And so if I was to describe the book in two sentences, I would say that we pay veterans to be sick, and then we wonder why we have so many sick veterans. And what I envision, and the, the epilogue of the book is written in my own words, I have a co-author who, not a ghostwriter or anything like that, he's a full, legit co-author of the book. And some of the really nice prose and all that is him, and the interviews are me. It's, it was a fun project. But the truth is that... Um, that because we pay veterans to be sick, we end up with more sick veterans. We pay people to feel worthless and to chase government benefits. And then we act surprised when they feel worthless and they chase government benefits instead of something more meaningful. And if that's a shocking statement, I would encourage everybody to go buy the book. And if you at know, the end of it, you don't, if you, if well, hang on, if at the end of it, you don't like it, cool. Send me an email, daniel.m.gate at gmail.com. And I'll give you a refund. Because I think that you're going to be, whether or not you agree with it is going to be up to you, but it's a sound 
fully developed, well-reasoned argument about a system that I would argue is hurting real veterans and making them into victims. And I, I, I find it repulsive and it disgusts me. It is amazing to see if you go on veterans bulletin boards and, and Facebook groups, there's a, a definite gamification of how to deal with the VA to get that 100%, that mythical 100% disability from the VA. And it is quite shocking the level of, I don't know, a, a approach to go after that. Now, there's plenty of veterans that are you know really broke, that really can't work, got it. But there's a number, a good number, where it's a continual goal to get to that. And it's a really a clogging of the system because there's so many frivolous claims yeah. that people yeah. put in for everything. And the kitchen sink, and they wonder why their claims take you know so long, and why there's such a backlog, as opposed to like I'm missing a leg. Okay, cool. One time in '92, and I, I that that makes my knee hurt. So it's a little more tenuous and a little less less clear. But of course, a lot of these regulations were written back in the '40s and '50s, and haven't really been updated. There's a update on some of the mental health conditions as well as sleep apnea, and that's uh, causing a furor because it's 50% if you use a CPAP machine. Well, we've had the most people that have ever had uh, sleep apnea in the whole entire world history when, hey, it's uh, not exactly the critical life-changing condition it was back in the 40s where you could die in the middle of the night. You have a machine, right, you're, 100%, right. you're good to go uh, now. And so it, it yeah. is definitely changing with medical science. But there's a lot of resistance to change. I think you'll probably run into that at the DVS where yeah, people are entrenched sure. and, and, and this is how it's been done. You're seeing a little bit with the VA already, I would imagine. Yeah, totally. I mean, one of, one of, one of the things I tell my people, because of course, when they found out that I'd gotten appointed, they Googled me and then they you know, saw that I was a Republican who'd run for office. And then they saw the book and they're like, oh gosh, is he against disability benefits? And the answer is, of course not. Of course I'm not. But what I would say is that Choosing to accept disability benefits is a moral decision that every veteran is faced with when they leave the service. And is your neighbor's dollar better and more morally just in your pocket or in your neighbor's pocket in, in terms of taxes, right? Because accepting those benefits unjustly. And for me, when I left, when I left military service, the moral choice I personally made was that I was only going to claim those conditions which were caused by combat. The amputated leg. No problem. I think I think that's fine. Some of the other stuff, all fine. But I wasn't going to claim things that weren't true. I was not going to claim a brain injury because I got a PhD after that. And I taught at West Point. I taught college. And I don't lash out at my wife. I'm fine. I don't have a brain injury. I wasn't going to claim tinnitus because, number one, my ears don't ring. And number two, the guy told me, hey, it doesn't matter if your ears ring or not. Claim it anyway because there's no test for it. And I was like, I'm not going to do it, dude. It's a moral choice. And so I think he was really surprised by that. But I would just encourage every veteran to think clearly about what it means to take benefits from the government. But John F. Kennedy famously said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And a lot of us have done a lot for our country. All veterans have done some and a lot have done a lot for their country. But just because you're out of the military doesn't shouldn't turn you into a welfare queen. And I think the system is designed to make people feel that way and uh, to make people act that way. That's what Wounding Wars is about. I think that's a really good summary, especially the approach towards disability and, and how what's the real purpose and, and how do you go about it? And I need to rethink how I'm approaching that entire concept. And, th and that's an exactly. individual choice. 
So before I let you go, what should I have asked you about but didn't? Well, and you warned me that question was coming. I think you didn't ask me about the people that I that are in my agency. This agency is about a thousand people. And by the fall, it's going to be up to 1600 because we're adding two nursing homes to our portfolio. I have absolutely phenomenal people working for me, working for the agency, working for the state, really working for their fellow citizens, working for veterans, not working for me. I'm just the temporary figurehead guy. But what I would say is that I have great people who are dedicated, serious professionals, all of whom, or virtually all of whom could be making more elsewhere. Because let's be honest, state government doesn't pay that much. But the reason they're doing it is because they love their fellow Virginians. They love serving veterans. And so I'm just proud to lead an agency of people who are committed. Back when I was a lieutenant, then General Shinseki, later Secretary of the VA Shinseki, was giving a briefing and he said something which has always stuck with me. He said, soldiering is an affair of the heart, by which he meant, yeah, you could be getting paid more, but are you doing stuff that's worth it to you? And for me, what I see around me with my fellow DVS employees is that this is an affair of the heart for them. They really love these veterans. They're going above and beyond. And so I would just encourage whoever's out there to, to reach out. We can help you with whatever you need. We're happy to do it. And, and so just reach out and, and we'll be happy to provide services for you. You know, we at Coming Home Well love the Department of Veterans Services. We have a lot of people that we work with and talk to. And there's so many great resources over there. And if you're ever in need for a person to put in your claim or work with you to try to do some sort of education benefit, especially the Military Survivors Independence Education Program, that one is the best in the entire country. It's better than the Texas one. It's better than the Florida one. And those are the only, I think, California as well. So Virginia has a number of really awesome programs for veterans, but there's a lot that people don't realize with cemeteries and nursing homes and a lot of things that happen throughout the Commonwealth for veterans. So if you are a veteran or somebody who is a veteran and they might need some help with something, and it may not be something you're really familiar with. It could be, hey, they're elderly and they need a nursing home, or if they're getting ready to pass away, you're not sure where they want to be buried, reach out or education benefits or whatever it is reach out Department of Veterans Services. They are a wonderful service organization. You don't have to use the VFW or American Legion. DVS does that. We have a very nice lady that comes by our work because it's mostly veterans where I work. And she handles all these questions and comes to the office, answers the questions, deals with things. They really do a great effort to reach out and maintain that connectivity. Uh, so I really applaud the DVS and I really look forward to the uh, changes of getting additional people, but also making sure that, that the great work continues. We've been talking with Daniel Gade. He is the commissioner of the Department of Veterans Services. He's a veteran. Listen to the beginning, if you missed it, uh, about his wonderful lengthy service. And, and it's a real profile and courage to continue serving after being injured, especially so grievously. There's a lot of folks who would be like, Nah, I get my ticket punched. I'm out of here. But he continued on and, and helped teach at West Point for a number of years and has given up a lot to be able to serve veterans in a number of capacities. And we thank you for it. Daniel, I'll leave you with the last word, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for what you're doing. And I really hope that this uh, podcast gets wide attention. If you send me the link, I'll put it on my Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that, just so that people can understand what's going on at DVS. And um, just really happy to be on with you. And thanks for doing what you're doing. Thank you again for joining us on Coming Home Well. Thanks for joining us this week on Coming Home Well with Dr. Tyler Pieron. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, 
please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. Follow us on Instagram at ComingHomeWell underscore BTS or on Twitter at ComingHomeWell. Thanks again. And until all are home and all are well, this is Coming Home Well.